You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, the US ambassador to Germany, Richard Grenoll, has only been in Berlin for a month, yet he's already facing calls for his expulsion after revealing that he wants to help empower right-wing politicians across Europe. My guests today, Mary Djevsky and James Boys, will be discussing this and the other top stories, including Russian President Vladimir Putin's visit to Austria and the debate over who should be deciding the laws that govern Northern Ireland. All that, plus we ask, who should pay for North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's hotel bill at next week's summit in Singapore? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Tom Edwards. A warm welcome indeed to Midori House. My guests are Mary Djevsky, columnist for The Independent and Guardian, and James Boyes, political historian specialising in the United States and its place in the world. A warm welcome to you both. Uh, Let's start with Russia's President Vladimir Putin. He's been visiting Vienna today, his first foreign visit since having been sworn in for a fourth term, uh, marking the 50th anniversary of the start of gas deliveries from Russia to Austria. Uh, Possibly no coincidence that Putin decided to visit Austria out of all EU nations. The country's traditionally been one of the friendlier ones towards Russia. It, for example, decided not to expel any Russian diplomats over the poisoning of former Russian spy Sergei Skripal, for example. Um, Mary Dijewski, let me come to you first of all. Uh, Putin was talking about uh, his desire for a strong EU, strong EU institutions. Was he being slightly disingenuous? Well, I don't think he was, because I have actually always regarded this as the official Russian line. Um, And the idea, which is so current practically everywhere in the West, that Russia wants to divide and rule um, the West in general and the European Union in particular, I think is just completely wrong. Because I think that for Russia, instability is one of the biggest risks, as they see it, um, to their own security. And so the idea that it would want something um, unstable and unpredictable so close to its borders, I think is, is just a misreading of what Russia wants. And the extension of that is, you know, all the talk that there was that Russia sort of raised the champagne glasses after the Brexit vote in the UK. I think that is also wrong for exactly the same reason. Uh, so strong and stable, that's what Putin likes. So that didn't play out that well for May in that for, for, or for Cameron indeed <laughs> previously. Um, what do you make... Uh, though James this visit to 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 Austria specifically 50 years on since uh, gas deliveries commenced from the Soviet Union of course um it, it kind of makes sense one imagines for 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 Moscow to to head to to Vienna one wonders where else he would go at this rate. He's hardly the most popular uh, world leader at this point. Uh, when you think about the uh, the backlash against uh, the Kremlin, which has uh, emanated from Downing Street in particular, which has been echoed across much of Western Europe, uh, it's hard to see how he was ever going to visit London, uh, Paris or Berlin. So where does that really leave? Um, and uh, obviously there's been a, an interesting uh, position with regard to Austria over many, many years in terms of trying to position itself as a, as a cross 
crossroads between east and west. Uh, so one shouldn't perhaps be too surprised by this. Um, I think that Putin has long played a very interesting game. Uh, we've been talking about this over many, many years with regard to the uh, the policies coming out of the Kremlin. And whilst I don't think necessarily that he's looking to divide the European Union, I think he'd certainly take issue with a number of the policies of NATO, for example, and the expansion of NATO up until uh, the Russian borders. This is something which has long caused great uh, consternation in the Kremlin, and indeed was recognised, it must be said, by senior policy analysts as early as the 1990s who speculated that, you know, if the West continues to push against a weakened Russia in the aftermath of the breakup of the uh, of the uh, the Soviet Empire that eventually there would emerge a stronger Russian leader he would take umbrage at this and seek to do much of what Putin's doing which is to try and sow some seed of, uh, of doubt amongst military leaders if not necessarily the political leaders I think one of the things that was really interesting was in the same interview where he talked about um, wanting a strong European Union, um, he also had all sorts of uh, praise for Austria, in particular for its neutrality. And he sort of stressed you know, that not only was it um, a neutral country, but it had been consistent in its neutrality. And there is an idea that um, if Ukraine were able to be persuaded to declare itself neutral then that would be that would go a long way to reassuring russia um, and could be the price of ukraine remaining territorial integrity but probably without it has to be said you, um, crimea uh, Mary, let me just pick you up on the point you made earlier about this idea of uh, stability, a sort of independence from the, the, the inner domestic politics of the EU country specifically, because Moscow does have this cooperation agreement with the Freedom Party, of course, the sort of uh, Austrian far-right political movement. Um, what does that what does that sort of cooperation agreement, what does that look like and what does that tell us, if anything, further about the more of the mechanics of how the, the Kremlin works? I think there's been maybe a little bit of rethinking going on here um, about Russia looking maybe too friendly um, and this being interpreted, obviously, um, in a particular way um, by the mainstream in the countries concerned. Um, we saw the same thing with France and um, Marine Le Pen being received um, in the Kremlin before the French elections. Um, and my impression, was by the way that um, Putin treated a question about this in this interview with Austrian Broad broadcaster, um, that um, he was really trying to distance himself, saying, you know, there was no money involved, that um, position of Russian president um, and parties in Russia, you know, the president is not a party, it's not a party political position. Um, and there was a lot of what seemed to me to be not exactly backtracking, um, but trying to say that um, these things um, weren't quite as they looked. And obviously we would respond and say, well, yes, they're absolutely as they looked. But I think maybe Russia is trying to... Um, is trying to adjust the impression that it made maybe up to about six months ago. Adjusting the impression it made, very, very diplomatic. But just on that point, um, James, what, what of, you know, Russian sort of cooperation with certain far-right parties, this kind of thing? Um, I guess to go back to the point that Mary opened with about this idea that perhaps we, in the Western media in particular, tend to maybe over-egg the cake when it comes to Russian influence or meddling in European affairs, this, this quest to, to, to destabilise, whereas in fact Mary's view is that quite the opposite suits Moscow better. Do you think there is a risk that we pursue that narrative too blindly? 
don't know if it's being pursued blindly. I think that there is uh, concern amongst many in the West with regard to what it is that uh, the Kremlin seeks uh, to achieve through one policy mean or another. I don't think anybody in their right minds thinks that Vladimir Putin has got uh, uh, military uh, designs upon any mil- uh, NATO nation, for example. But uh, I think, uh, as in the past, you know, there has been a, a, a suggestion that perhaps what the Kremlin would like to do is to achieve uh, through one mean or another some degree of territorial uh, reconciliation with where it was in the past. I think if you look at basic national interest it is perhaps seen to be in Putin's national interest to try to expand it's been suggested that this is to do with issues to do with trying to divert attention from from domestic uh, uh, policy woes the state of the economy perhaps for example um, and again it's uh, it's interesting I think to try and look at where Austria sits with regards to this trying to say well how is it sitting here what's it doing what's it actually saying uh, suggestions about neutrality are fine but then what you see is it adopting an almost pro Kremlin point of view with regards to sanctions for example so it's not remaining nat- neutral by saying nothing. It's actually taking a line which, from the Kremlin's point of view, seems to be rather friendly and certainly warmer than any dialogue that's coming out of, for example, uh, Downing Street or the Elysee Paris. And, and I think this is true that, I mean, it, that Vienna in particular has seen itself as a bridge between East and West um, and enabling dialogue that was sort of impossible during the Cold War. And it sees itself now in a continuation of that position. Uh, well, let's uh, cross the border to Germany. The US ambassador Richard Grenell is facing a backlash after a recent interview he gave to the far-right Breitbart News platform. According to the site, he said he wants to empower conservatives across the whole of Europe. The German foreign ministry asked him to clarify his comments. Other German politicians have criticised him for a breach of diplomatic protocol. Some MPs are even calling for him to be expelled from the country. Um, Mary and James, there are certain sort of principles, I guess, over what ambassadors are meant to do or not do, what to say and what to to not say. Um, Do you think that Grenell here is playing up James Boyce to this idea that the rules, though, for American ambassadors are different? I think there's, there's several things here. It must be remind, uh, remind many uh, listeners that, of course, that in the United States, uh, it's many of its high-ranking um, ambassadors are basically by their position. So we're sitting here in London at the moment, uh, and the current ambassador to the United, United Kingdom is someone who effectively bought that position by giving uh, many millions of dollars to the Trump uh, campaign. If you look at the res- representative in Germany, that's a slightly different situation. And I was actually quite surprised uh, when this individual was nominated because he doesn't have a background as a donor. He doesn't have a background as an intellectual. He's someone who was a spokesman. Uh, at the United Nations. Uh, and I think what it speaks to is the paucity of talent that was prepared to go and work for Donald Trump. Uh, the Never Trump movement, uh, which uh, emerged during the 2016 election, had a, a huge impact, uh, which many people I think missed, upon who it was that went to staff not only the White House, uh, senior levels of position, but also coming all the way down through ambassadorial levels. So we have a relatively inexperienced individual uh, in a senior ambassadorial post. Uh, you know, you would have thought long ago that a posting to Berlin would be, as it should be, a high-ranking official with senior foreign policy credentials. And simply these people will not work for Donald Trump, and we're seeing that replicated by this individual who's no surprise to anybody is giving a friendly interview to Breitbart, always been in the pocket of Donald Trump, and basically parroting the party line with regard to right-wing parties. Uh, Mary, that is quite striking, isn't it? I mean, one wouldn't have thought if we look at certain countries across the EU, we've seen uh, electoral successes, maybe not uh, 
sort of getting into the executive arm, but certainly posting the numbers um, that maybe these conservative elements <laughs> don't don't need any help. Why get into this? I mean, is James <laughs> right? Is it simply to keep the, 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 the red-faced incumbent of the Oval Office happy? Well, I think it's um, maybe more um, cock-up than design um, in the sense that I agree with James. I, mean, I think that the, the, there is an element of sort of appalling amateurism. Now, often this happens um, when American ambassadors... Um, in senior positions who are not by and large professional diplomats you know in the first couple of months that they're there um, there, there, there is um, the potential for all sorts of difficulties and generally they try to be cautious during that time um, it looks as though in the case of Geralt this is, that has not actually happened but I think also there are two other things going on um, there was this degree of sort of innocence and naivety but also because he was giving an interview to Breitbart um, which has a certain um, direction certain complexion to it and he was in a way playing to that audience without realising that maybe that um, as ambassador to Germany he also had to play to certain other audiences um, I also think there may have been a slight um, uh, vocabulary problem or problem of register in that when he talked about um, right-wing or conservative um, parties or groups or whatever he was talking about, he was looking at it in an American context without appreciating how that would sound, not just to a European audience, but to a German audience in particular. And, of course, that uh, Germany at the is particularly sensitive about relations to the mm. United States. Ever since 2013, um, when it was revealed um, that Angela Merkel's telephone, uh, mobile phone, had been tapped by the NSA, um, and that created a lot of, um, a lot of aggro, um, which I think is still there under the surface, despite all sorts of attempts to, um, uh, to, 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 to um, quell the storms. Indeed. Um, and James, we talked before about the Trump administration, what its appointments, what its successes or failures will do. In terms of that restatement about the US place in the world, um, US foreign policy, if indeed there is one, um, its diplomacy. What does this latest incident, uh, and it's, he's already had a couple of run-ins, even his short tenure there mm. in, in Germany, what does that tell us about the US face to the world and, and indeed this possibility that the damage being wrought now could have far longer term consequences yeah it's a fair point um there's no doubt i think that uh, as mary rightly points out that the choice to be interviewed by Bart is is telling uh you know ambassadors do get a choice of who to speak to it's telling that uh speaking in germany he chooses to speak to a, a conservative american network uh and that that is where this has originated from um I think, you know, going to address your question and to bring in a point I made earlier on, though, that what you find is that there is overall an amateurish about many uh, high-ranking American officials in, at a diplomatic level, simply because they do not come through the kind of uh, old-school uh, diplomatic channels that, for example, you would expect to find at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Say what will about British ambassadors, but, you know, most of them, if they raise to a high-ranking posting in, say, Washington or, or Berlin, for example, 
people have been in positions before and they come through a hierarchy. You know, despite the fact that someone like Richard Holbrook, for example, who had once held this position uh, in Germany, when you contrast uh, not only um, postings under uh, Donald Trump, it must be said, but I had a, a very interesting run in with an American ambassador to a central European country only a few years ago who quite frankly couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. She could not answer <laughs> questions on any single facet of policy without referring back to her permanent staff. It was quite remarkable. Um, and, and that is not, therefore, this isn't a Republican Democrat problem. It's an American problem that speaks to a problem fundamentally with who's representing it overseas. And it will continue to erode trust, I think, under the Trump administration. Uh, James, just while we're here, and we just sort of touched very briefly, mentioning the Democrats and Republicans, yep. it's obviously, um, you know, sort of midterm season. There's a few primaries happening stateside, California, of course, today, and all the rest of it. Um, I'm still slightly concerned, given this backdrop, which has diplomatic manifestations, and it's just generally about the sort of quality of personnel across Capitol Hill, really. We're still not seeing any kind of galvanising behaviour from the Democrats Democrat Party. We're not seeing a unity candidate throwing uh, their hat into the mix, even if, if we look ahead to 2020. Just before we move on, wh- why is that process not going anywhere? It's quite remarkable, isn't it? You know, we're talking about the primaries today. If you remember, it's the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Robert Kennedy after he won the, the California primary in 1968. Here we are 50 years later on with Donald Trump in the White House uh, with the clear parallels with Richard Nixon and all the scandals that are ensuing uh, at this time. You would have thought that the Democrats would be rubbing their hands together, coalescing around a series of, of high-profile candidates who would take the fight to Donald Trump uh, in two years' time. It's simply not happening. And quite frankly, the uh, you know it's music to the ears of the White House. The uh, the greatest uh, potential for a second term for Donald Trump, quite frankly, is coming from the fact that there is no uh, obvious opposition coming through uh, in a, in a manifestation coming around, galvanising around a single Democrat who can take the fight uh, to Donald Trump on the kinds of issues that, um, quite frankly, the Democrats should be running very very strong on uh, in terms of issues to do with credibility, uh, legality, the scandal. We've heard. Donald Donald Trump's lawyer Giuliani come out this week and say, frankly, he could shoot um, anybody in the Oval Office and get away with it. I mean, these are just uh, just astonishing statements, which under any other circumstances, I'm sure we would be talking about in great length. And they've become the norm under this administration. There you go. A sobering thought as we pause here on Midori House. Still with me, Mary Jajewski and James Boys. Up next, who should get to decide the laws that govern Northern Ireland and... Perhaps the most important question of the day, who'll be paying Kim Jong-un's hotel bill in Singapore? Stay tuned. Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's Bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24.
Welcome back to Midori House with me, Tom Edwards, still with me, Mary Dijewski and James Boys. Now, here in the United Kingdom, the Supreme Court will rule this week on whether Northern Ireland's abortion laws should be in line with the rest of the UK. Pressure to ease restrictions in the province has been growing since Ireland voted to repeal laws banning terminations last month. MPs in Westminster have today held an emergency debate over the province's ban and who should get to rule over it. Um, Mary Dijewski, let me come to you. I guess on the sort of broader constitutional question here, first of all, if you have a devolved assembly, however much that structure is devolved and however much still rests in Westminster, if it can't form an effective government, before we get into the nuances of this question specifically, isn't it perfectly legitimate that Westminster says, well, look, we will rule on an issue that is of pressing regional as it is national importance well i think the problem with that um and having um watched some of the um debate in the commons this afternoon um the problem with that is twofold one of them it looks like exploiting a vacuum for a particular um principle the other problem is that of course the current british government depends on the votes of the ulster protestants to stay in power and to get the Brexit legislation, um, which Northern Ireland coincidentally did not vote for, um, through the Commons. So there are those two reasons why not um, at this current point. But, I mean, I will lay my cards absolutely on the table and I will say that I think this issue as same-sex marriage, where Northern Ireland is also out of kilter with the rest of the country, um, should be a matter for the union. It should not be a mm. matter that's devolved. Um, devolution in the UK is slightly um, peculiar because the powers that have been devolved to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are actually different. Um, there's no sort of um, consistency across um, what's been devolved by London to the um, to the separate parts of the UK. Um, but it does rather look as though um, the abortion question and same-sex marriage were made devolved powers to Northern Ireland because of the extreme political and religious sensitivity in Northern Ireland. Uh, James, to that point, you know, is it possible to leave both political and religious complexity of the kind we see in this part of the union to one side, even if it's a question about which we say, well, hang on, look, some things are absolutes and we can decide that, you know, it's a question merely of right and wrong and it should be beyond all political or religious affiliation. I feel I feel handicapped having to go after such a tour de force answer, quite <laughs> frankly, um, from Mary. But I think this is one of the areas that I'm sure Theresa May is absolutely just sitting there going, why, why, why have I got to deal with this? this I, think they, I think the government would be very happy for the court to come down and issue a ruling that they could just get behind and stand behind and say, right, you know what, this is not something that we've decided. We're just following uh, her, their, uh, their justice's uh, domain effectively. But I, I certainly think that... Uh, this is something which uh, the government doesn't really want to get involved in because, as, as, as rightly pointed out, when you look at the uh, the debt effectively this government owes to members, uh, MPs from the territory, you can certainly see how uh, there would be obvious questions about conflict of interest, etc., etc. Uh, and it's a decision which will therefore potentially please nobody. Uh, so I really think that they're going to be looking to the courts for uh, uh, some guidance here. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's... Um... <laughs> 
this would not be looking such a stark question and a matter of such urgency right now had it not been for the vote in the Irish Republic. Until that vote, it was possible for this issue to be sort of um, fudged as a, a sort of all-Irish question. But the vote in the South um, in favour of legalising abortion was so much stronger um, than a lot of people had anticipated um, that that really makes Northern Ireland look very much um, odd man out. The other thing is that on Thursday in the UK, the Supreme Court is actually going to rule um, on a question of whether abortion legislation or the, the effective banning of abortion in Northern Ireland is a breach of European and um, human rights legislation. Now, if the Supreme Court were to were to decide, were to rule that that is indeed the case, then the government in Westminster would really have a very difficult choice to make um, because in a way it would be required um, to have the same legislation across the whole of the UK and to legalise abortion in Northern Ireland. Um, but, you know, for all the political reasons that we've gone into, this is a particularly difficult juncture for that to happen. Uh, well, and just briefly on that very point, Mary, we've talked before about the Irish border question in the post-Brexit context. We have this now politically, the complexities, as you mentioned, because of the United Kingdom governmental issues. Um, it is funny, the Conservatives, they used to be the Conservative and Unionist Party, of course, in their very name. Um, via Brexit and via this deal uh, with their sort of colleagues in, uh, in the province, ha- have they driven us closer towards I don't know, an Irish reunification question than we've been in many, many generations. Well, I think that's back on the table. I mean, an awful lot of people are trying to pretend that it isn't, um, but it is sort of creeping back. And of course, one of the uh, one of the options for, as it were, solving the Irish problem in terms of Brexit is actually to draw a notional border down the, 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 the sea route rather than dividing Ireland. Um, and of course, the moment anybody talks about that then um, everybody who is opposed to unification of Ireland says you know this is absolutely out of the question because this is a step in that direction Um, but you know I have to say as obviously not being either Northern Irish or from the Irish Republic um, I do rather think that a united Ireland is the obvious solution if not immediately then looking down another generation Uh, well let's uh, head from one highly complex question to another Uh, finally today it's only one week to go until the eagerly awaited on then off then on again summit in Singapore where US President Donald Trump is due to meet with North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un there have been a fair few sensitive diplomatic issues that have needed to be solved Uh, it's now emerged one of them is the question of who should pay for Kim's accommodation. Uh, the economy weakened from sanctions. Pyongyang requires someone else to help pony up for the dear leader and his delegation's bill. According to reports, Kim wants to stay at a luxury hotel where the presidential suite, presumably his minimum requirement, uh, costs over 
$6,000 a night. Uh, Mary and James, I'll turn to you both for any suggestions. Uh, and James, I gather you're particularly well qualified uh, to tell us more about this. You've just returned from, from Singapore. What did your fact-finding mission I, tell you? I did indeed. I was over there for a week. I got back at the weekend. Uh, and all I can tell you is, uh, God help the good people of Singapore when Donald Trump and, and Kim Jong-un arrive, because it's going to be like a zoo. Uh, quite frankly, uh, I was over there and uh, there were rumours flying everywhere about uh, where certain delegations were, where the Americans were looking, who was looking, where they were, the place was going to stay, who was going to stay where. I can't help but think one of the reasons that the location was chosen was because it's one of the few major capitals where there isn't a Trump uh, hotel, uh, at which Donald Trump could, of course, uh, try to uh, yet. flog. Not yet, <laughs> absolutely. Try and flog a few uh, stakes and some dodgy ties, quite frankly. But uh, quite frankly, you know, we're looking at a, a very, very, very high-density uh, location. Uh, I think that the, uh, the city is going to grind to a halt uh, for the, uh, the time of this summit. And uh, frankly, where either of them stay is going to be a security nightmare because uh, for those of you who haven't been to Singapore, it's a very, very uh, uh, intricate and uh, uh, actually very small centre. Uh, and when you look at the, the very relatively small number of hotels that could host uh, a presidential visit of this scale, either from the Americans or from the North Koreans, and then to actually hold the summit at, you know, it, you're actually brawling it down to a very small number of locations, all of which I think are going to be a security nightmare as well as a logistical and, in this case, financial problem. Well, food for thought. And on that last point, Singapore, we understand, will put out for sort of general security expenses. Others will then be met by by both sides. Mary, what what do you who, who deserves to pick up this tab? It could be six thousand plus dollars a night, and and the rest, and the all rest. that security. Yeah. That well, James you know, is under, under any other circumstances, you would say almost that Donald Trump, um, the Trump estate, would be the ideal <laughs> paymaster for this. Um, but of course, you can't do that without saying, well, you know, it looks like a sort of very dubious incentive. Um, the other way countries get around um, paying or not paying for accommodation at summits um, is to use their embassy. Um, but North Korea is in this, um, I don't know what its embassy is like in, in Singapore, though I believe it has one. But if you consider its embassy in the UK, which, you know, is a major diplomatic posting in sort of global terms, um, it's little more than a private house in a, in a suburb of London. It's up in um, Cricklewood or somewhere, isn't yeah, it? I think, so, yeah. you know, th- this, th- this is not something, if, the, if it's equivalent in Singapore, this is not something. And I think, Kim, he has to give the impression um, of being on a par one-on-one with the President of the United States. Um, But at the same time, I think there's got to be some explanation. Maybe there's a reason why the problem with the bill um, is that he's got to to please the guys back home as well. Um, And they can't see their President looking too opulent. Absolutely not. I I heard the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons offered to pay with the cash they received for winning the Nobel Peace Prize, which I thought was possibly (laughs) the solution where everyone will win. Uh, There we go. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's programme. Mary Dijewski and James Boyce, thank you both for joining us here on Midori House, which was produced by Marco Sippi, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Limichi Okamoto. And our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. My thanks to all of them. Midori House will be back, of course, at the same time tomorrow. From me, Tom Edwards and the team, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>